Get it like that one, boy. Good job. Yeah, I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing, but... Oh, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Man, Aaron, is it cold enough out there for you? It's, I guess it's definitely beginning to feel a little bit like Christmas. Boy, it sure is. You know, Stephen, I'm just, I'll be honest with you, I'm not used to these type of temperatures here in the Ozarks. I mean, uh, especially this early, you know. Certainly you could say that february january if we get them at all that's that's a more applicable time of of year but uh anyway it has been a busy time of year and you know i haven't even had time to get out and go fishing at all and like we talked about last time you know it is truly a, a just a, a great time to be out here in the ozarks and, and throwing a jerk bait or a football jig or a drop shot boy that's so true and i just i feel bad just sitting here talking about it but uh I don't know. I know for me each year, it's sort of mentally tough to get out there that first time in the cold, but, you know, we're always answering questions about how to catch fish. Well, let me just say right here, step one, you got to go fishing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty safe to assume, and I can tell you, I actually do have a trip already on the, on the calendar, um, so I am going to make sure that I hit that first week of January, if, if nothing else, just to get out and compare it to last year, but, you know, the holidays truly are a good time good time to fish you know a lot of times like we've spoke about many many times here on the edge is you can have all of the lake practically to yourself and uh, you know it's kind of like your old, old way of fishing steve when you talked about you know the cowboy games uh, being on television down in texas or people in attendance there and um so very similar to that and you know speaking of football i i do have to congratulate you and all the folks from your beloved Bama Nation on their big win over Florida. You've got to be right. feeling pretty good right now. All right. We are indeed. We had a good time with that. Roll Tide. But uh, we've got Mike McClellan on the phone ready to go as he's going to be talking about wintertime fishing, uh, throwing a jerk bait, and football jig. Well, let's take a quick break, pay a few bills, and we'll be right back to talk with Mike McClellan. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Electronics 101. Harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. are back on the edge and here to close down the 2009 broadcast season is a BASS veteran that has amassed over 1.1 million dollars in career earnings and finds himself eagerly anticipating the upcoming Bassmaster Classic. From Bella Vista, Arkansas, it's Mike McClellan. Mike, welcome aboard. Good to be here, Aaron. So, uh, Mike, you know, it's kind of the final countdown here. Are you feeling pretty good about, uh, you know, your your chances of your name being on the nice list for this year's Christmas? You know, actually, it's as hard as it is to believe. I really think I have achieved that. I have, uh, after the tournament season's been over, I've uh, got together uh, with my wife. I've got all the honeydew lists done. I've uh, fixed some things around the house that have piled up all summer. So I think uh, maybe I am on the nice list, and I'm going to 
I'm going to wish for one of them uh, future Christmas presents and wish for a classic one this year and see what happens. Well, that certainly is a good one to wish for, and uh, quite honestly, you are certainly worthy of it. Can't think of a nicer guy to uh, to be in that position. But speaking of Christmas, Mike, you know, in this time of year, I I really place your name as synonymous with cold weather fishing, and you know, just given your affection for jigs and jerk baits, is is this a fair, I guess, statement or assessment? Oh, there's no doubt about that. You know, the biggest thing with me is is growing up. Uh, I loved to deer hunt, but it was hard to pry me out of the woods or, you know, keep me off the water because it was just something about the winter, the cold cold weather months of the year that that really inspired me to fish. And, and you know it as well as I do. When you're fishing like, like Beaver, Table Rock, Bull Shoals, you know, even Grand Lake, I mean, there's not any better bait to get the job done in the winter than a jig and, and the new Spro McStick. I mean, we didn't have the McStick when I started, but, I mean, all of the years that I've spent fishing – through the course of the winter is what really um, pushed me to want to, to, to design that stick for Spro. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something I look forward to every year, these colder months of the year. Well, what is it about these two baits that, you know, you and the fish find so attractive? You know, it's just, it's exactly the, the, the things that we've been talking about. In the winter months of the year, the fish's metabolism slow. They, they become somewhat lethargic, but they're going to eat at some point in time. And the fact that you can fish a jig, you know, such as a dual football jig, you know, a half ounce or five-eighths ounce, depending on how deep these fish are, in a manner that, you know, you can fish it slow, you can really be thorough with the way you're fishing it. I mean, that's the reason a jig produces. I mean, typically in the, the winter and early spring of the month, fish start, you know, feeding up on shad, and there's not a better, you know, bait to resemble a dying shad than the mixed stick. I mean, it suspends. You can put it in front of them, and you can generate those bites that are that are tough to get that time of year. Well, you know, I I really want to get inside your head on uh, the you know the conditions, the time of year, you know, the structure that you're looking for when you have the opportunity to fish a jig or a jerk bait. And you know, let's kind of start with with the present time of year. What what are you perhaps keying in on right now? Um, you know, using um, using those two baits, or are you using those yet? Oh, yeah, it's it's definitely here. In fact, I've had the opportunity to be on Table Rock, I, I guess, probably just about a half a day uh, with my oldest son. Uh, he is uh, definitely wanting to follow in Dad's footsteps. And, uh, in fact, he won a tournament on Table Rock just about this time of the year last year with nearly 26 pounds. So, yeah, I've been on Table Rock. I've had that dual football jig in my hand and uh, had the opportunity to catch a few fish. He was kind of stingy. Uh, he didn't want to put me right on the, the goods the day we fished. You know, it's like, Dad, right there's where we would catch him, but we're not going to fish there today. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've been out throwing a dual football jig. In fact, I'm actually uh, uh, in Tennessee right now getting ready to film uh, a McStick show with uh, with Charlie Ingram. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to throw both of the baits this, this fall and, and winter, and really it's setting up to be a perfect year for it again. We've got some, you know, really cold weather in, and, and that's what really makes the, these two baits come to come to play this time of year. Are, are you finding that they're more, you know, towards the backs of the creeks, middle, point-related? Can you give us any specifics on kind of some of the generalities that you're looking at? You know, basically, the as the, the winter progression, we got a pretty good cold snap early, and the fish started pushing back really maybe a little earlier this year, and I think we saw it trend through the whole course of this tournament season. The fish were maybe, a, well, early in the year they were behind themselves, and then as the winter came, we got a little 
cold weather push early, so it pushed the fish to the back of the creeks a lot quicker this year than than I think we normally would have seen them. Now we got a little moderation; it kind of held things up, but uh, now we've gotten really cold pretty quick, and the fish have definitely started. You know, they're back out of the creeks. You know, halfway to three quarters of the way. And, yeah, they're related to points, but uh, one of my favorites, uh, regardless of, you know, the type of lake that I'm on, is, is these little channel swing banks and, and transition areas where these channels swing off of the bank or maybe actually out in the middle of a creek uh, up against a flat. I mean, those are the key places, uh, not only for the jig, you know, if you have rock on the bottom, but if you've got any, any kind of structure stumps, you know, cedar trees, whatever it might be, I mean, those are ideal places to catch them on a jerkbait as well. Well, and a lot of times uh, those can be some of the least pressured, you know, especially when you're talking about off the shore, you know, perhaps setting out in the middle of the old channel. Oh, that's that's the whole key to any of the fishing that I seem like I want to do. I mean, I'm always looking at those areas that I don't feel like everybody's fishing. You know, so many fishermen are, are, are sight fishermen. I mean, they're visible fishermen. They're going to fish the structure that they see on the bank. They're going to fish the obvious points. But... In my book, the ones that are going to get you the better bites, the ones that are going to get you more bites this time of year are the ones that are less subtle, the ones that are, you know, out in the middle of the creek. But you have to use your electronics. You know, I rely on my Lawrence Electronics, uh, Navionics mapping chip, and, you know, that's one of the biggest things that puts me out there where I'm fishing for fish that not everybody's fishing for. Well, good point. And, you know, with the jerkbaits, there are just really so many sizes, colors, divers, you know, it, the list goes on and on that, that line the aisles. Can you simplify this for, you know, those of us who are, you know, kind of clueless when it comes to selecting the right jerkbaits, but also perhaps on a limited budget, you know, given today's economy? The thing about it is, is you you definitely want to try to match the hatch. You know, we're in a, in a time of the... I guess the industry that, yeah, there's, you know, probably eight or ten different sizes of jerkbaits when you start really specifically sizing them, I mean, you know, per the the millimeter size. I mean, you know, you look at the the bait that I've designed for Spro, and I I tried to pick what I felt like was the most common size when I went with the 110. But as time goes on, I mean, I'm working on a 95 version right now. And, uh, you know, also working on a, a deep diving, you know, basically about a 95 version. So, you know, there's so many different avenues and sizes of these jerkbaits. But to me, the 110 is probably the jerkbait that I would pick up any day of the week if I had to choose one. And, and that's the reason we started with the, the 110 with the Spro stick. There's definitely days when you need to drop down if you've got a real, you know, relatively light, light wind day with, you know, extremely clear water. And when those fish are really feeding on small threads in shad like we uh, sometimes run into on, on Table Rock and Beaver and these lakes around us. But the thing about it you have to consider is, you know, we do have a good population of, of gizzard shad, and that 110 is definitely more the size that, in my mind, the bigger fish is going to want to eat. And to me, that is what we're trying to do this time of year. I'm not worried about going out and catching 50 this time of year. I want to go out and get six, eight, ten bites, but I want them to be three to five pounders or maybe even bigger. So to me, the 110 is the perfect size, and that's the one I'm going to pick 90% of the time out of the box. Well, certainly there's no better feeling when uh, all of a sudden your line's setting still and you just see it kind of uh, jump and, and swim off. What about colors? Does does colors have a, you know, do colors have a, a pretty big impact on your day on the water? 
There's no doubt about that. Uh, colors to me, you know, I've always been, you know, in the new era of baked painting, you know, the, the companies have all gotten so good about custom painting the baits, or I should say factory painting the baits. Uh, for years, you know, I used Tim Hughes to custom paint so many of the jerk baits that I threw, and then still will rely on Tim to uh, color some baits for me that I can't get from the factory, just for the fact that we're limited on how many colors they want to produce. But to me, color is real key. I know that uh, through the course of designing this Pro Mix stick, for some reason, the old glory color was one that they kept producing in the in the sample versions and sending back to me. And it wasn't my favorite color by any means, but as I developed the bait and as I threw that bait, I realized how awesome of a color the, the old glory is. I'm very fond of the uh, blue bandit. And another color that was... Uh, Almost an accident, in a sense, was the the uh, chrome shad has probably been three of the uh, the best colors in the last couple of years, you know, here on Table Rock. But of course, you know, we've got a a full line. We've got uh, Table Rock shad, which so many people are fond of, you know, here on Table Rock and bull and and even beavers. So um, colors are key, and I think the biggest thing is you you have to let the day dictate what color you're going to throw, and you really have to let the di- the fish dictate what color you're going to throw. There's so many days I go out and I pick up. You know, Blue Bandit is probably my favorite color, number one choice any day of the week, but I've found on many days that, you know, the, the fish don't want that color, and I have to, to alternate to something else. Well, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this, but you're, you're giving up some of my personal secrets here, and you're not supposed to do that. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm supposed to be extracting that from you guys here, Mike, but no, seriously. Hey, what about the, the cadence or retrieve, you know, when you're out there throwing the jerkbait? That's another thing that is so key, uh, throwing a jerk bait, especially this time of year when the water finally gets below that, you know, 48 degree mark. I feel like your cadence is going to dictate whether you're going to go out and, and catch some bass on a, on a mixed stick or, I mean, have absolutely one of those, uh, flop for days. I mean, I have seen many days where, well, you know, I hate to pick on my son, but, you know, go out, uh, both of us go out on the lake, uh, maybe even in separate boats and, you know, I'll be catching him on a jerk bait, and you know he'll be calling me occasionally, checking in with me. It's like, Dad, you know, what am I doing wrong? I can't catch him on a jerk bait, and it's all about the cadence. Uh, patience is one of the big keys, and I feel like that's one thing that I have developed not only in my stick bait fishing, but jig fishing, and a lot of other things I do. And you know, the pause is so critical this time of the year. The fish are lethargic; they're not necessarily in a feeding mode, so it's kind of like you have to put that offering out there for them and, and coax them into biting it. I mean, you know, if I sit down at the, the table or the coffee table at home and I'm really not that hungry, but there's a bowl of chips sitting there on the table, if I sit there and look at them long enough, I'm probably going to get in there and get some of them. And to me, that's kind of what jerkbait fishing this time of the year is all about. You put the bait in the prime location, you let it sit there, and that bass eventually is going to get to, to the point where he's not going to let it sit there without going up and seeing what it's all about. And, and quickly, when you say the prime location, are, are you normally, I know we talked about channel swings, are those normally steeper banks, and what about wind? Do you want wind blowing on it or not? Wind, to me, is absolutely probably one of the biggest things that can also you know, create failure or success. There's so many days that I go out with the intentions of wanting to catch them on a jerk bait, but if the wind doesn't cooperate, if you don't get a little bit of wind, it can be tough to do sometimes. Uh, you know, Table Rock, the clear lakes that we have to fish, watercolor can also dictate that. If you've got a little color in the water, you can sacrifice the wind, but if you've got that, 
you know, predominantly clear clear water like we're used to fishing, you better have a little ripple on the water. And I'm, I mean, all it takes is a ripple, just enough to break the surface of the water. You don't have to have a big chop, but just a little ripple on the water, and it'll make all the difference in the world is being successful on a jerkbait. Well, Mike, I know certainly you've spent a lot of R&D uh, with Spro on your particular bait. But, you know, concerning even the McStick or, or others that perhaps you've used in the past, are there modifications that, you know, we should be aware of that perhaps can help us out, you know, that we need to make to the bait or anything along those lines? Absolutely, without a doubt. I don't care how good a bait company is at making baits. There's so many things that dictate whether that stick bait is going to suspend, whether it's going to sink a little bit, or whether it's going to float a little bit. The one thing that I've found with stick bait fishing this time of the year is you do not want your bait to float. You know, if I get my bait on the initial cast, if I can crank that bait down and twitch it and get it down to five or six foot deep, and I stop it to pause it for 30 seconds, and that bait's floating. It's it's moving up out of the strike zone. So little modifications are so easy to do. The, the one thing that I told them at, at Spro when we designed this bait was I said, I do not want this bait to sink, you know, out of the box in water as cold as it can get before it freezes. I said, you know, this bait has got to float a little bit so I can modify the bait to do what I want it to do. And that's what we've come up with. Typically, what I like to do as far as modifications, and there's so many different ways to do it, but the McStick comes with standard number five gamakatsu hooks on it. What I like to do is the first thing is take the front hook and change it out to a number four if I need a little additional weight. If that maybe creates too much weight and the bait starts sinking, I'll drop back to the number five and I'll simply add like one extra split ring onto the current split ring that's already, you know, hanging the hook on the bait. It's such a minute amount of weight to change the, uh, the uh, basically how that bait's going to suspend the buoyancy of the bait that, you know, you just have to play with little tricks. But those are my two tricks, either changing hook sizes or adding split rings to the current split rings. One thing I hate to do is, I mean, these baits have such awesome paint jobs on them today. I mean, why would you want to stick a piece of you know, a lead strip or a, a suspend dot or something like that on the bottom of these baits, you know, and and uh, mess up a good thing. So um, either the hook sizes or just adding split rings is what I'm going to do to change the weight of the bait. And there's definitely days that you want that bait to be dead suspending. And then I've seen many days on Table Rock that you want that bait to sink a little bit. So don't ever be afraid to, you know, mix it up. Try some modifications, and uh, that's really the only modifications I feel like are necessary with the McStick. And, you know, a lot of other baits are, are great stick baits. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, basically what I did is I took everything and a lot of stick baits that I liked and meshed it into one to come up with, in my mind, the ultimate stick bait. Well, certainly did a good job there, and you really kind of almost answered my next question, and that was going to be, do you tie directly to the split ring, or do you employ a snap or anything along those lines? That's something through the course of the years that changes, and it even changes for me day to day. If if I'm just getting started throwing a stick bait this time of year, a lot of times I will employ the smallest cross-locking snap on my line so I can have the ability to change baits, you know, quick and easily. Even though I am using a snap, I still use a small split ring on the nose or the line tie of my stick bait side 
I don't think it matters, you know, in any sense. I'm always going to have a split ring on the nose, whether I'm tying direct or whether I am using a snap. Typically, the snap is, is something I do just for the ease of, of being able to change bait colors. Once I determine, you know, this is the color I want to be throwing, I, I would much rather tie direct to the, the split ring that is on the line tie, but I won't ever tie direct to the line tie itself. Well, good advice there, and I've got to make up some ground because I've got us so sidetracked here on the jerkbait, we still have to cover <laughs> the jig. But one last question concerning the jerkbait, and that is what type and size of line quickly are you throwing this on? When we're talking about cold water jerkbait fishing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with monofilament. You don't want to throw fluorocarbon this time of the year due to the fact that fluorocarbon line will sink. And as you're letting that bait pause, the fluorocarbon will actually sink below the bait and you'll, you'll, you'll lose the detection of strikes. And you'll actually sometimes get that bait deeper than you want to get it. So definitely monofilament. And I've found over the past couple of years that uh, Andy makes some tremendous monofilament in green and clear both. And that's also going to, you know, maybe di be dictated by watercolor a little bit to clear the water. I definitely want to use clear. If you get that green tint in the water, I'll, I'll go with the green monofilament. Typically, line size, I'm going to throw somewhere between 8 and 12-pound test. I very seldom ever go above 12, and it's hard for me to ever go below 8 just for the fact of the, the quality of the fish you're going to catch this time of the year. And quickly moving on to the jig, how are you fishing the, the jig in cold water? Are you fishing it on the bottom, or do you swim it at all? Describe that a little bit. That's that's one of the biggest things with the jig, and in my mind, there's certain times of the year that you want to hop the jig, that you want to, you know, move it a little more, bit more aggressively, but 99% of the time when I'm fishing a jewel jig, whether it be a football jig or an Aikens jig, you want to keep that bait in contact with the bottom, and I mean, that's something I learned from, from Jim and Troy Aikens, you know, the designers of the Aikens jig. I mean, for many years, I caught fish sporadically on a jig and, and finally one day Jim you know and I sat down and I'm just like you know what makes that thing so good and he said you know he said yeah the jig's you know a big part of it but he said you've got to keep the bait in contact with the bottom and especially in cold water there's there's no bigger time that you need to do that these fish are lethargic when they're not up suspended feeding on bait Typically on cloudy days, a lot of people misconceive the fact that, you know, they would think a cloudy day the fish are just automatically going to go shallower or suspend. But in the winter months of the year, typically when we have cloudy days, the bait goes to the bottom and the fish go to the bottom. So, you know, cloudy days, overcast days, I think I'm going to stick with the jig more often in the wintertime and uh, keep that thing in contact with the bottom. But fishing a lot of the same type of structure, you know, we've talked about throwing the stick bait on channel bends, uh, sometimes channel banks themselves. The biggest thing with a jig in my mind is you want to be fishing that with some rock on the bottom. You know, you're, you're not doing yourself any good fishing an old mucky bottom. You want to be fishing a, a chunky rock, pea gravel with chunk rock mixture bottoms to be successful throwing a jig this time of year. Are you partial to a particular style of trailer this time of year? You know, I really am this time of year. I throw a variety of trailers all through the course of the year, but this time of year, I really stick to that Fat Albert Twin Tail. I think that, you know, compact becomes really key this time of the year. You're really not moving your jig a lot, so you don't necessarily need a, a trailer that has a lot of action, but that just the good old Fat Albert Twin Tail creates a good, nice, compact package on that football jig, and I feel like it'll get as many bites as any trailer you can put on it. And finally, what about line size and type? Line size for a jig is 
completely the opposite of the stick bait. I'm going to be throwing cigar fluorocarbon, ranging it anywhere from, you know, possibly as low as a 10-pound test line. Generally in the wintertime, you know, you don't typically need to go over 15. The thing about it, winter fish are fairly lethargic, even if you're catching some big ones, some six, seven, eight-pounders. They don't really have enough fight in them to, to really worry about needing to step up to 20. So 10 to 15-pound test cigar fluorocarbon, and I think you can get the job done at about any lake you want to go to. Well, Mike, we are officially out of time, but before we go, make sure you pass on and tell uh, Mr. Charlie Ingram hello. Appreciate his show. Happy holidays, and thanks for taking time to visit with us today. You bet, Aaron. It's always a pleasure to be here. And, man, I hope we get the opportunity to get out on Table Rock here in the next month and see what we can do with the jig and the stick. Absolutely. Look forward to it. know the importance of protecting your investments so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat grinding sand abrasive rocks and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology keel guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour providing the most dependable most trusted keel protection for your boat guaranteed for life so give your boat the performance edge put on the protection the pros pick keel guard keel protectors Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. Jigs and jerkbaits. Oh, Mike was sort of talking your language, wasn't he, Absolutely he was, and you know, being involved in that interview, I can't wait to go back and listen to it again, because I can promise you that is a piece of information that every single one of us can take out, listen to it again, and improve our jerkbait and jig fishing skills. Well, it, Mike's great, and we're talking right now with him about being on an episode of the show uh, next year, so uh, so we're looking forward to that. But, Aaron, we do have a couple of really great questions today, and to answer them, we've called on our good buddy Dave Wolak, and I know you had a good time visiting with Dave, so let's go to those questions right now. Welcome back as we have a Bass Edge regular, Mr. Dave Wolak, joining us, who is still celebrating over his beloved Yankee World Championship. Dave, how in the world are you, my man? Uh-huh. Yes, I am celebrating the Yankees. Uh, kind of getting over it at this point now. We're looking at some new uh, new players and so forth. But uh, it was a good season for baseball and, uh, and a good season for fishing. And uh, looking forward to the next one as well. Absolutely. Well, you know, today, Dave, I have uh, have a bit of a challenge. I'm going to throw you under the bus a little bit, like I usually do, uh, as we are <laughs> heading straight to the listener email bag to answer a couple of questions that uh, probably are at the forefront of almost every angler that's out there. And, and the first question comes to us from Chad in Louisiana, and he says, usually when I hit the water, I am able to locate the fish very quickly. It's not uncommon for me to catch one, two, and occasionally three bass. However, herein lies my problem. I normally can only catch a few bass. After I've located the fish and caught some, I seem to flutter out, and my success quickly dissipates. Can you suggest some methods I can try to fix this problem? So there you go, Dave. Knock yourself out. Well, you know, that's a good question, obviously. Uh, um, I think a lot of that holds, you know, maybe to the fact that Maybe his enthusiasm level goes down, and if your enthusiasm level goes down, like maybe after the third fish, um, you're not thinking of what that fish 
uh, and those previous fish have done to, in your own mind, dictate a pattern. And I think that um, you kind of have to stay as interested and focused as possible on every single fish that you catch. And it might not even have to do with interest, focused, or, or enthusiasm. It might just have to do with simply not letting those fish dictate a pattern. And, um, um, and you know, that whole kind of focus and expectations thing, I kind of try to key on a lot when I'm fishing. And, um, um, and you know, I'll get into expectations a little bit more later, but the, 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 the focusing on what that fish tells you, say you caught it in a pocket, say you caught it on a point, say you caught it on a dock, say you caught it on a piece of wood sticking up, whatever the case may be, or obviously lure choices, color, let each one of those fish dictate a pattern. And you can usually, I think a lot of people get stuck in the rut of just fishing in that vicinity of where they caught those first three fish uh, and doing the same thing over and over again, thinking that they're going to multiply that uh, in that same area. And uh, a lot of lakes, you have to move around, get a, you know, a replenishment factor, uh, at least let that replenishment factor time elapse so that it's allowed in the area, say, that you started and caught three fish in. And, uh, and then go someplace else that's kind of mocking that same pattern around in, in a different part of the lake. Well, and I think you bring up a good point there because I kind of throw out the comparison of, you know, running a sprint versus a marathon. I mean, no doubt you get out there and you're all, you know, jacked up. Um, you're catching fish, the adrenaline's rushing, and then all of a sudden, you know, kind of your emotions take over and start to settle in throughout the course of your day. But I've seen it, you know, you and I have been out before, you know, on schooling fish to where you go after, you know, there's going to be some that's in that area that's probably more aggressive than the others. Maybe you catch those first, and you've got to figure out a way to go back in and catch the remaining ones. Yeah, oh yeah. I just went through that yesterday, Aaron. I, was, I think I told you I was striper fishing, and I finally got an opportunity. I've been working really hard this off-season with my sponsors, and I got an opportunity to go out striper fishing. And really, it's a matter of where the birds are diving and, and getting on those active fish, because loons and birds are all diving there and kind of stir up that bait, and the stripers get active, and you go get a couple. And then you go through a period of time where there's no activity, and you really it just you just get down. And then all of a sudden, that your heart rate elevates again, your, your respiration's up, you go bananas because, you, you know, you see all this activity, and uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's like a race all day, just like you said, and uh, and you have to stay in those downtimes focused on what you should be doing and move around and, and uh, just, you know, set realistic goals and expectations so that you know um, that you're putting yourself at least in productive water, you know, the most of the time. So it sounds to me, for Chad's benefit, you know, obviously pay attention uh, to what's going on with the information and the feedback that you're getting instantaneously, but also, you know, don't be afraid to switch it up from what you, you know, perhaps uh, caught those bass on to begin with. Yeah, and and a lot of times during the course of the, you know, say in the summer, for instance, when low light conditions and the morning bite is is the best. Um, you know, getting back into what I was saying about expectations, you got to expect almost to have a period of time during the day when it's when it's tougher. So if you go into that mid afternoon bite, realizing that if you get one or two additional bites before they start biting again in the evening, really good when the light gets lower, um, that you're really not putting yourself in a down mood, like thinking that your decisions are poor or anything like that. You're just, it's a matter of grinding it out and, and fishing really hard and keeping that level of enthusiasm up, knowing that your expectations are that uh, it's going to be kind of tough anyway. Well, good stuff, Chad. Hopefully that helps you out. Our question number two actually originates from Andy in Columbia, South Carolina, not too far from your stomping grounds there, Dave. And uh, his question that he wants to know is he just wanted to ask, um, 
probably the single most important question in his uh, repertoire of bass fishing, and is how can I consistently locate schools of large bass? And you can use Lake Murray, South Carolina, as a starting point, as he does most of his fishing on that lake. But he is catch uh, a fish catching machine uh, when he can locate fish. His most awesome time of the year is spring. Why? Simply because he can locate large fish with his eyes, and he is versatile enough to catch 99% of them. However, it seems that the older that he gets, he is unable to find fish like he used to. Very frustrating. In other words, he knows when you all go to the lake, or one of you that you haven't fished in a while, there's quite a bit of preparation required. And he is wondering what the key is to finding catchable fish in a limited time. He believes that if he can find a better way of finding fish, he will be able to adapt to these sudden changes more rapidly. Okay. You know, uh, that's not a, a 10 part question, but I just, you know, I just kind of, I could, I could sort of involve a lot of that, uh, into what I'm going to say here. I was thinking when, when he said large schools of large fish, um, that's something that we obviously all look for and you're not going to always find that. So it gets back to my expectations thing. But what you try to do when you go fishing, and I know I do, is I try to put myself in places where I at least know there's, you know, replenishment. And in order to have large schools of large fish, you need a large spawning flat and an area adjacent to where you choose to fish that you feel can contain a large population of fish. For instance, uh, he's talking about Lake Murray, South Carolina, um, a major tributary. Uh, one of the biggest creeks in the lake that has a giant flat in the back that you know during the spawn, a ton of fish use that flat to spawn. There's willows in the back or whatever the case may be, a lot of water that comes in, a lot of sediment that creates that big, large flat with isolated pieces of wood. Um, that large flat is going to have a large population of fish that use it. And when you do find them, you know, you may or may not be able to catch them, but at least you're putting yourself in the ball game. And I do that on a place like, say, Gunnersville. If I go to Gunnersville, I try to be around major tributaries where I feel um, like sometimes, you know, uh, uh, one, choosing your pattern for an entire three-day tournament, and this is an extreme case here, to be fishing in a small main lake pocket the entire time, that just isn't going to cut it because that's just not going to sustain an entire population of fish and especially the amount that replenishes throughout the course of a three- to four-day event. So... You have to be around a major tributary, a major spawning ground, and set realistic expectations for yourself so that you're uh, planning on having a lot of those fish uh, replenish. And, you know, and seasonal things. I mean, he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, different times of the year, finding these larger groups of fish. Right off the bat, pick a major area like that that has a good spawning population next to it, and also fish the seasonal pattern. I mean, is it the blue-black herring spawn there. So are you going to be looking for the three flat points that are adjacent to that big spawning area that you know that that big population of big fish come from and goes out to those points to attack those bluebacks on? Uh, or is it, you know, going to be a, 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 a winter situation where you know all those fish from that flat in the back of the creek pull out to a, a bluff wall or, you know, some nice vertical cover with rock on it, whatever the case may be that you want to fish in, in the winter, maybe just a a deep flat with big stumps that has a lot of rock that generates a lot of heat. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's always a matter of aligning the variables so that they equal replenishment and all the variables to be the weather, the season, 
the the uh, the time of the year, the the amount of fish that are in the back of that cove, the bottom content, everything that has to do with finding more and bigger fish, you have to align all those things so that it equals replenishment. And then you have that magic uh, large schools of large fish that are caught in a large amount of ways. I mean, it all it all lines up. Well, I had, yeah, yeah, I think that makes absolutely you know absolute sense in, in that respect but going back to kind of one of the things that he points out also that Andy points out in his in his question is you know the springtime and going back to your statement on expectations you know I don't want to get into a limited or a lack thinking here but one thing about the spring is that we know you know there's a lot of fish moving on the move because of nature's way of you know reproduction and so I think that goes back to the expectations and what you said with seasonal conditions what are the fish doing during that particular time of year in which you're fishing yeah that's so right and I think that somebody that just gets used to that being the case and has a ton of uh, of uh, experience on different waters um, really just gets that feel that in the summertime it's just not even close going to be to the same amount of fish moving and biting and size of fish that you're going to have in the springtime I mean I know I learned that in college. I lived on a lake in college in Pennsylvania. And uh, this lake, I mean, if I skip under a dock in the springtime, I'd have 20 largemouth and 20 smallmouth following a bait out from underneath the dock. It was, like, unbelievable. And then you, two months later, you could not get a 50 docks, and you'd have to work. And, I mean, I time of the year, but even with the grass growing and everything, it, was, it became a you know, scratch-out-of-limit type of lake where all those fish just went out and suspended on bait, and they were very difficult to catch and mostly became nocturnal feeders. There was a lot of different reasons for it because of the boat traffic and everything else, but either way, it became very, very difficult to get fish. So you go out there with completely different expectations in the summer than you do in the spring. So um, you're going to have that on every lake, obviously, and he's just got to kind of alter that mindset right off the bat for the time of the year but at least think of where he's putting himself to spend that fishing day, say, in the summer when you know it is a little bit tougher, if he's putting himself in productive water by thinking about seasonal patterns and all those, you know, uh, variables of trying to align himself to so that the equal replenishment, he's going to have a better day out there. Well, there you go, Andy, and a great uh, piece of advice to start out uh, 2010 in your fishing season. Uh, Dave, before we get out of here, because we are out of time, you know, we've got to talk a little bit about Christmas because it is right around the corner. I just want to let you know I do have your uh, case of sham wows on their way to you for your Christmas gift. (laughs) Hey, those things are made in Germany, man. You know the Germans make good things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but uh, like I said, we are out of time. But uh, thanks so much for once again being part of the Edge uh, in the interim. Have a wonderful holiday season and look forward to doing it again in the near future. Thanks, buddy. We'll see you. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com.
Well, Aaron, it's been a good day. Man, it was good to hear from Mike and Dave, and gosh, what a lot of great information. Boy, it was, and, you know, I'm kind of sitting here, you know, speaking about being a good day and it flying by. I'm kind of thinking about the the, the entire year. I, remember when we just, you know, it seemed like we were selling, celebrating our 100th episode, you know, about mid-year, and when you think back on all the guests that we've had throughout the course of 2009, it's been pretty humbling. Well, boy, it is. And if you look back at the collection of those podcasts, they're almost like a a, a class in, in bass fishing. So, uh, uh, you know, I'd encourage folks that are just learning about us to go back and, read, and, and listen to some of our old podcasts. Uh, there's just a ton of information from the very best in the business. Absolutely. And certainly, um, man, we had a great time and going to continue to have a great time moving forward as we do these. Yeah, well, Aaron, I do have a small announcement to make. And uh, beginning next month, January 2010, we're going to become a monthly podcast. And as much as we like uh, being here each week, uh, things at Bass Edge have just become a little more hectic every day. And uh, it's become more and more difficult for, for you and I with our time to try to put out a quality show. So we're going to go, you know, we're going to go monthly, but uh, we're going to try to make up for that in quality. Well, and and that's what I was about ready to say, Steve. You know, I kind of think that uh, we've become through this evolution now to where we need to ramp it up a little bit, and it's, it'll allow us to, to really focus, um, you know, a little bit more time, uh, maybe go into a little more detail uh, into the topics like we've had many requests to do. So, um, yeah, look forward to that. Also, would like to remind everybody concerning, uh, you know, the specials that's going on at BassEdge.com through the mm. e-store, uh, some good opportunities to, to get Get your hands on some stuff at a very cheap price. Well, Aaron, I guess this is it for another year. I'd just like to wish you and and all the members of the Bass Edge Nation out there a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And want to invite you back. It's going to be an exciting year in 2010. Boy, it sure is, Steve. And happy holidays to you as well. And really to everyone that has kept us in their ear and on their television sets throughout 2009. We hope you'll join us in 2010. So long, everybody. Bass Edge has been brought to you in part by Ditch Witch, Mega Air Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, Super Start Batteries, Mothers, polishes, waxes and cleaners, and legend boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com.